loop in my bowling action, but it might not have been a complete coincidence that it's reminiscent of Peter Taylor, a bespectacled accountant who briefly bowled off-spin for Australia after being drafted in for the Sydney test. No one seemed to have seen him bowl before that series, including most of the regular watchers of top-level cricket in Sydney. The rumour that the selectors had meant to call up future test captain Mark Taylor, his New South Wales teammate, and got the wrong man, was strengthened by the fact that only one recognised opening batsman had been chosen. There were three other blokes, all capped at international level ahead of him in the state spin bowling pecking order. Yet there he was, a virtually unknown 30-year-old with just half a dozen first-class appearances to his name, whirling his arms around before delivering the ball and doing so to great effect. Perhaps subconsciously his technique had an effect on how I bowled because I appear to have blatantly copied him. Peter who? As he was dubbed in the build-up, proved the difference between the sides in that fifth test, taking eight wickets at this Sydney Creek ground, or the SCG, to claim the Man of the Match award, while a young lad in the Midlands did his best impressions 10,000 miles away in his back garden. Alec and I were constantly playing in that garden, taking it in turns to be England. Whoever lost the toss had to be Australia, and we would play innings after innings until we got called in for tea. Each team would have five wickets, meaning that five players would be nominated to represent you from each side. I was already patriotic enough to pick the worst possible team I could think of when it was my turn to be Australia. I would be all the lesser-known names. Dirk Wellham, Tim Zura, Greg Matthews. I simply refused to be Alan Border, Dean Jones and David Boone, preferring to play badly whenever I was the other lot. This doctrine of the game, with my substandard efforts, was match-fixing in its purest form. Of course, Alec would be desperately trying to win, but I just couldn't stomach winning as Australia, even against my own brother. Yet when he was the Aussies, I wanted him to choose the A-listers, so that winning tasted all the sweeter. We had bespoke rules for these contests, such as two out of five batsmen having to bat left-handed, and every third over having to be sent down left arm. We would turn the back garden tap on to slick up the pitch too. Every day we'd be out there, strapping the pads on and bombing the hell out of each other. Our garden had the perfect dimensions for cricket, being about 12 yards wide, and the ball would be flying to all parts. Only in later years would I come to realise how blessed I'd been watching such a successful group of individuals defeating the Australians. I had seen some of the 1985 Ashes, and England had also won that one, of course, but I was to come to understand that for an English supporter growing up in the 1990s, it was a rite of passage to see your team being hammered by Australia. People carried on harking back to the marvels of 1981 for the next couple of decades, but that was probably to ease the pain of some horrible thrashings. I remember the hardest to take was the first in the sequence in 1989, when the team billed as the worst in Australia's history arrived for a routine defeat. Such forecasts proved extremely foolhardy. To be honest, we got slaughtered. It was absolutely chaotic too, as just about everyone who played county cricket got a test cap that summer, and not one of them could cope with Terry Alderman, the innocuous-looking swing bowler who wobbled it around a bit and caused mass panic. Not least for Graham Gooch, our best batsman, who looked like he had homing devices tucked behind the flaps of his one-piece Stuart Surridge pads. Whenever he put them on and walked out to bat, Alderman seemed to locate them. Yet when he played county cricket, Alderman was just an honest pro, a worthy bowler who would hold his own with a few wickets here or there. In the six test series in 1989, he got 40-odd. It was just one of those summers where the ball swung round corners and he was able to get it to talk. And so my adolescent view of the Ashes was formed. Most of my talking about cricket as a kid was with my geeky older brother, and I owe most of my cricketing knowledge to the fact Alec is such a nerd. I followed him everywhere and became the ideal sounding board for him to show off his extraordinary statistics. He knew everything about everything. He was like a walking wisdom, so he always knew the exact margins of England's defeats and the averages of each of the players on either side of the divide. 
For when it came to England versus Australia, that was what it was, a divide. From a very young age, you can sense that the competitive rivalry between the two countries is fierce. There's no getting away from the fact it exists. Yet if you ask a sports fan from either side, they would struggle to explain why. It is there because it always has been, just as night follows day. Once you've actually played in the games, you realise that any sense of hatred between the players is a bit of a myth. But sport at the highest level creates tension, and tension creates occasional flashpoints, and these only serve to fuel that myth. They also help fill time and keep people amused in afternoon speeches, but they're not truly representative of what happens on the field. From my experience, there is no preconceived nastiness simply because your opponent is Australian. Sure, if someone nicks one and doesn't walk, they're likely to get some stick, but that's because they've got away with one, not because they're playing for Australia. What is true, however, is that the Ashes as a concept has developed into a huge event over the decades, and as players, you buy into that whenever you're selected to play. And the rivalry has perhaps been developed...